0: Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to This Being Human. I'm your host, Abdurrahman Malik. On this podcast, I talk to extraordinary people from all over the world whose life, ideas, and art are shaped by Muslim culture.
1: Makeup is my medium, so I am an artist. I'm a makeup artist because makeup happens to be my medium, but I tell stories through makeup.
0: What does it mean to be an artist who paints on a living canvas? That's what I wanted to speak to Sandra Signs about. As a makeup artist, Sandra has had her work featured in magazines around the world and is currently a global brand ambassador for KVD Beauty. Sandra stands out. In pictures, she dresses all in black with a wide-brimmed hat, the contours of her hijab visible underneath. Her work ranges from traditional aesthetics to bright colors splashed across models' faces, like masks, or some sort of abstract clown makeup. Sandra made history in her industry as the first hijabi Mexican woman to secure agency representation in the United States. Of course, being the first comes with challenges, and Sandra isn't shy to talk about the barriers she's faced in her work. She also recently had her first art exhibition as an artist-in-residence at the famed Shangri-La Museum of Islamic Art, Culture, and Design in Honolulu, Hawaii. She spoke to me from her home near Dallas, Texas. I was so excited to see that you were the artist-in-residence at the Shangri-La Museum.
1: Oh, thank you. It's, you know what, it was such a blessing in disguise. I didn't know I needed that residency for my heart, for my art, for showing people what we can do as Muslims and not just Muslims, but we come from all walks of life. Like I'm Mexican, you know? So I always tell people I'm like a unicorn and they're like, why a unicorn? I'm like, well, have you ever seen a unicorn? (laughs) They're like, no. I'm like, exactly. Have you ever seen a Mexican Muslim? It's becoming more common now, but we're still kind of like this mystical, magical creature (laughs) that sort of exists
0: there's an image from your Film Eleven Eleven Beautiful Patients, which premiered as part of your residency at the Shangri La Museum of Islamic Art, Culture, and Design earlier this year. And There's an image from it that I just can't shake. The film shows you before the camera, seemingly without makeup, and there's this paint of many colors falling over you. And and initially, it's like you and your body accept it, and then you're wiping it away, and you're you know you're trying to uncover your eyes. And and the colors are mixing and all kinds of unusual shades and hues. And then the film switches and you're looking at the camera and it's this look which the film describes as anguish because the word appears there. And then it's like you scream and you weep and you pray. And I actually had to stop the video at that moment. Because I was, it took my breath away. What was the anguish that you feel that you felt?
1: Ah, This is so powerful. It's and, and thank you for that feedback, because that's exactly, as an artist, what I wanted people to feel. Something. I wanted them to, like, stop for a second and think, wait, I felt that. I felt that in my core. It resonated with me somehow. So when it came to anguish, in order to understand a little bit how we got to anguish, I'm a makeup artist and I've been a makeup artist for 20 years. And so there was no better representation of me showing what I do, but just using color. And that's how it started. It's just a black canvas. It's me wearing all black. And there's a symbolism and there's a meaning to that, actually. when I So I'm a convert to Islam. I converted when I was 25. And I remember when you're not a Muslim and you discover Islam, it's like this explosion of color. It's like, whoa, it's so amazing. Like, you just feel like it's too much. Like, you don't even know where to begin, where to start. You're so excited. And so the dripping of the color symbolizes this whole new world of color. And it's also parallel to my journey with makeup. You have to learn makeup. It's color theory. It's So that video specifically is parallel with my Islamic journey as well as it is with my artistic journey. At the same time, there's also, at least when I became a Muslim back then, there were, but there weren't a lot of programs to truly help converts. It almost felt like the auntie that was there when you converted at the mosque would take over and tell you, <laughs> right. you can't wear color, you can't do this, you can't do that. And you're like, "Uh." and then like, it's the saturation. So somewhere in the video with the colors, You see me suffocating. There's actually a little piece where you see the pain going inside my nose. That was all real, by the way. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like a bit of a disturbing moment because you're like, okay, what, what's going on now?
1: Is she gonna choke? Is she? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is she gonna suffocate on that pain? And I truly was. I remember I told my photographer friend, who was helping me film this, I'm like, do not stop. I will be okay. Call nine one one if I
0: end up
1: (laughs) suffocating in this, but I really want to capture this. So the way that you receive islam as a convert sometimes it's incredibly overwhelming there really wasn't something you know that gave me the proper steps or like there wasn't anybody saying hey take it easy islam is simple it's people that's complicated right and so it almost became like you have to work hijab you have to get married and i'm like wait a second what <laughs> like nobody told me <laughs> all these things so it became overwhelming so The explosion of color and everything dripping was almost kind of like how I received Islam. It was a lot of a lot of a lot of a lot, but it was beautiful and it was colorful. So it was almost kind of like a big mess because I was depending on the community to give me all this feedback and everybody was giving me this feedback. There is a video and it's online. It's on my YouTube somewhere of my Shahada.
0: The Shahada is an oath declaring one's belief in the oneness of God and the acceptance of Muhammad as God's messenger. Simply put, when you express this creed, you become a Muslim.
1: I took Shahada on a Friday. And the whole mosque was there, so everybody gave me a hug. So I think it was around, for sure, 100 people plus giving me hugs. So it's, again, it's that paint. It's all those colors. They were all from different nationalities, different skin tones. So that's what that meant. Now, anguish...
0: Yeah, and I can already start to feel a little bit of that anguish as you're speaking about this, in terms of this kind of this overwhelming experience and how to process that.
1: Right. So I couldn't explain anguish without explaining that first part. And anguish comes from... A beautiful explosion of color, all of a sudden, incredibly overwhelming. But then anguish is like the expectation, not only from my Muslim community to become what they culturally feel fitting for me, depending on who's telling me, but also the lack of acceptance from people that are not Muslim. In my case, I was working for a very big company, a makeup company. And I was a regional artist for them. And I remember saying, so this is a little backstory. I was really annoyed that people wouldn't know that I'm Muslim because I would be working and I would see hijabis and be like, Salam Alaikum. And they're looking at me like, what? (laughs) It's like, oh, look, an American (laughs) that learned Salam alaykum, (laughs) right? And then I don't have the Arabic, you know, like uh, sound, I guess, to it or tone or ring to it. And so I would be so annoyed. And I'm like, how can they know that I am Muslim? I'm just going to wear hijab. I was going to wear hijab, that's it. And I started wearing hijab. So when I told my company, the company I was working for, my employer, I want to start wearing hijab, they're like, there's no way. And I'm like, wait, what? Wow. I'm like, what do you mean there's no way? (laughs) No, there's a way. And they're like, no, no, no. Like, and and I remember, you know, my boss at the time, she was Latina like myself. And I just thought she would understand, you know, it's a decision that I made. and, And she's like, why are you going back? And I'm like, what do you mean? And she's like, why are you, you're going back in time. Women have liberated themselves for centuries, and now you're oppressing yourself again? And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. This is a choice. He's like, so your husband's not making you do this. No, I became a Muslim before I met my husband. Like, what are you talking about? Like, my <laughs> husband converted for me. What do you mean? <laughs> Almost like, top of thing. thing. I mean, of course, he's more Muslim, but still, like, you know, he started practicing a little bit more after he met me. But so, no, I, it was just one of those things where I converted and I... I discovered something so beautiful and I discovered something that truly spoke to my heart. It converting to Islam to me, it was the very first time that I actually made a decision for myself. You know, I didn't choose to be born Catholic. I didn't choose to become a Christian. It was kind of like pressed upon me because my mom remarried somebody that was a Christian and was like, well, it'd be nice if we're all a Christian family. And I'm like, well, sure, why not? You know, I didn't choose to come to America. My mom got married to an American and we ended up moving here. I didn't choose what high school the district chooses that, you know, I go to. I didn't choose anything. I'd never had a choice. But Islam was one of the biggest decisions that I've ever made for myself. And I was very proud of that. And so I never understood why people were so pressed about it, why people were so angry about me making a decision that made me happy, you know, instead of accepting it and saying, well, good for you, right? I got, like, the extremes of both sides.
0: That is such a difficult place to be. And yet, Sandra, you have found a way of being yourself. And even that film that we were just talking about, from anguish, you move the narrative into this section on roots. And you, Sandra, are grounded in many cultures, in many languages, in many traditions. And part of me thinks that in that beautiful crossroads and intersections of culture, language, and tradition, there must have been a moment where you realized that you were gonna be an artist, that the artist came out in you was there a moment in your childhood or growing up that you recognized that art and a life of working with color was going to be your path?
1: Yes, and it's I, and I love that you're saying it with such a smile and pride. And you know, I've never said this before, but and I want to be super candid. I feel like a lot of kids are very creative, right? It's almost kind of like art in my childhood took over just so that I could survive. It was a survival mode for me because my dad died from an early age and it was just me and my mom. And so I feel like my escape was art. My escape was creating a reality on paper and sketching, drawing that didn't exist. And I think kids do that when they're playing with GI Joes or Legos or Barbies or whatever, right? They create this like, you know, they play family, they do this. For me, it was, I'm going to start sketching. So I'm an only child, so I grew up by myself, and my mom had to work, so I was alone a lot. But I wasn't alone when I was drawing. I was in my mind, I was in my head, I was creating beautiful things that kept me busy. And then in school, I remember, so you know, I'm Mexican, I have my little hustle, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I used to be really good at drawing. And the very first time that I ever got noticed between my peers in school, in elementary, was when I started drawing cartoons. Back in my day, I'm 39, you know, we had Carton Network and there was this cartoon called Two Stupid Dogs. So I used to draw these little dogs And people were so like, wow, this is really cool. So I was like the geek person that I was not good at sports. I was not good at anything, but I was good at sketching and drawing. So I would have a line of people that would say, could you draw this for me? It's funny that my best friend not too long ago told me, you know what I remember from you from childhood? You having a line of people in front of your desk saying, yeah, just get in line so you can get a drawing.
0: (laughs) That's so awesome. (laughs) And
1: I'm like, what? Are you serious? And she's like, yes. But then the hustle was... I started charging 50 cents for these drawings, so I could have lunch money.
0: <laughs> well done. So
1: that was my early commission, you know, from my artwork.
0: Sandra, that's dope. That's real.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I mean, my mom didn't have time to do lunch here and there, and I wanted some extra chips, and yeah, you know, that's how I got my side hustle. So, but that's, it was connecting. Connecting with people, we're humans. I feel that precisely, specifically at this very moment, that's what's going on in the world. We need to connect. We need to have dialogue.
0: makeup artistry is is so unique because you're working with the human body, right? The human skin as your canvas. And, you know, that canvas isn't static. I'm intrigued to know what it's like to work with a living canvas. And in some ways, Sandra, what drew you to working with that canvas in the first place?
1: So there's a short answer and there's the long answer. The short answer is, and I always say this, (laughs) I claim this quote, I suck at many things in life, but makeup I'm really good at. So that's the (laughs) short answer. The long answer is, I've always was interested in painting and I wanted to become a painter. And, you know, Mexican grandma's are very interesting. And I remember telling my grandma like, oh, I want to be a painter. And she's like, "Ah, you're gonna be famous when you die. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I was like seven <laughs> years old. And I'm like, ah, oh, that's kind of traumatizing.
0: Oh, that's home truths from Nana.
1: <laughs> I mean, so I was just like, oh, that's great. Well, let's look into something else. So and then later on in life, you know, insecurities hit when you're a teen. And I remember thinking, I just... I don't know. I feel like a surgeon would be fun because, you know, when you're insecure, you want to change things about yourself. And, you know, I was born in 84. So I lived through the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. So I remember thinking, if I could change people you know, and change these things about them that they don't like, that would be awesome because I would love to change things about me that I don't like. And then I thought about, you know, studying medicine, but my mom's like, you're more of a creative. I don't know if I quite see you in med school. And I really thank my mom for that because it's absolutely true. I would have failed miserably and I would have been so angry. So it's a combination between becoming a painter and being a surgeon because I change people. I guess I transform people while at the same time I'm painting Except it's not permanent, you know, it can come off. So it's kind of like a happy medium in between both. And I was really good at it. I started getting hired by my high school peers to do makeup for their prom and all of a sudden friends and things like that. So it just, it became this thing.
0: Makeup is often referred to, and I'm sure you've heard this many times, Sandra, as the armor or the mask. And yet when I hear you talking, I'm hearing someone who isn't afraid to use the makeup art as a way to bring out vulnerability and complexity and the whole of who we are. And actually, I have to be honest, I've never heard someone speak about makeup art in that way. I've most often heard it spoken of like as a mask or a shield, but it feels like you're doing something really, you're approaching this in a kind of a different way.
1: I tell stories through makeup. Makeup is my medium. So I am an artist. I'm a makeup artist because makeup happens to be my medium. But I tell stories through makeup. Like if I'm working on editorial work and a lot of people don't know what editorial work means or beauty or, you know, stuff like that. So in editorials, we tell stories. Usually, let's say if it's a fashion editorial, it means we're telling a story where we're showing the clothes from... XYZ designer. But there's also a place for hair and makeup in there to tell who is that girl? Who is that story? Who is wearing those clothes? And you can tell a lot by their character, by their makeup. Think about it this way. I'm pretty sure somebody in your family, an auntie, your mom, your grandma, your sister, someone, right? Do you remember something very particular about them about their makeup. Like for example, everybody in my family has tattooed eyebrows. That's their thing. I don't know why they did that. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> it was not a good choice, but a lot of them tattooed their eyebrows. Some of them, their eyeliner, some of them, their lips. You remember faces sometimes. Oh, do you remember the teacher with the red lipstick? Or, like there's these little things and aspects that represent you like, or me, like the lady with the hat. Like people always refer to me as the hijabi with the hat. That's why when somebody comes to me and says, let's say this a social makeup, somebody says, Hey, I want to hire you to do my makeup for XYZ. Okay. Do you have any reference of what you'd like? Most people will tell you, no, I trust you, but then you still kind of have, you have to have some sort of blueprint. Like you kind of need to know what, you know, what is it that they like? So um, some people want to enhance their features and look like themselves. And then some people want to fully change how they look like. So again, it becomes this dance. And it's like a dance between trying to understand the person. What are they asking from me? What story can I tell? Who do they want to be that day? That type of stuff.
0: You know, as you're speaking, I'm reminded of a post on your Instagram page where you have these white and blue crosses painted over your eyes and bright red lipstick worn into a frown. And And you said in the caption to that particular photograph that you did this piece of art after reading an essay on imposter syndrome, and as you're speaking, I'm thinking, this is it, isn't it? You're reading something, you're engaging with the world. And I'm particularly interested, what made you think of that abstract concept and say, I need to express this through my art. I need to tell this story through my art.
1: Well, fortunately, a lot of people don't read captions. (laughs) (laughs) I love that you do, (laughs) but most people don't. Most people are very visual, especially now where they just look for three seconds and then scroll. So you see this really bold, blue and white crosses, which is meant to look like a clown, right? It was almost like a clown and imposter syndrome came from, I mean, I actually have two thoughts on that. When I first read of it, it almost takes over you, right? Like is this feeling, and you can probably help me explain it a little bit better, but it's like this feeling that you're never good enough. And that wasn't quite, cause you know, I don't have imposter syndrome. I don't quite think I've ever had it. It's more of the For example, I work a lot online. A lot of my work is online and creating things online and digital art and digital stuff. And so it's almost like a clown. You hire a clown, you have him at the birthday party, and you really truly don't know if that clown is going through stuff, but they take five minutes of their day or an hour to go make you happy. It's performative. And so makeup in a way that we're looking at it now in this day and age, it's very performative. We have lost the art of makeup artistry or we have lost the artistry in makeup artistry. Everything is about numbers. Everything is about engagement. Everything is about likes. We have forgotten about that connection with people and we're selling them dreams that unfortunately they don't exist. Makeup is not going to make you feel prettier or better. It really isn't. It's going to be that need or feel that you have to purchase the makeup. And mind you, I'm telling you this and I work for a cosmetic company. So I must know something, right?
0: <laughs> so, Absolutely. You're, you're the expert here.
1: <laughs> you know, because it's our job to go and say, this is the best lipstick ever. But is that going to stop your sadness? Is that going to stop your feelings inside? So there's a lot to it. And so we have lost the artistry in makeup artistry. And so, yes, makeup is not a necessity. Makeup is a luxury. And a lot of people don't know this, or a people, a lot of people kind of don't think that way because we've been conditioned to feel, especially women, to think you need to wear makeup to feel beautiful and look beautiful. There's something about my makeup, you know, it's not very noticeable, but I wear a full face of makeup, but I'd never do my eyebrows. Because I have to have this element of undone. I don't want it to be fully glam perfect. I want it to look raw in a way. I will also look very crazy with very bold brows and a hat. So <laughs> I, wanna, I don't want to look like Angry Bird. I want to make sure that there's like a balance. But the whole thing about imposter syndrome we are, I'm here, I'm doing my job, I'm performing. But you guys don't know what's going behind that. I'm posting and everything looks perfect in my life, but it might not be. Maybe my kid got sick that day. You know, people that have family members in hospitals, they still have to go on with their lives because they still have to make a living. So it's not about the imposter syndrome, about me not believing in myself or sabotaging myself, but it's mainly about how I still have to highly perform. And I still have to pay a blind eye. In, in I have to say this, but in this day and age where inclusivity and diversity became top thing, we're still not very inclusive and we're still not very diverse. And we still have to perform like that is actually a thing, especially in makeup artistry.
0: Well, you're the first Mexican hijabi makeup artist to secure major national representation in the United States, which means you're working at this kind of top level of your field. When you secured that, Sandra, how did that make you feel? Like, how did you approach that? You know you're good. We know you're good. And now there's this almost this, industry recognition isn't there that you are doing something which is worthy important and eminently marketable
1: it's bittersweet and it's bittersweet because i wish i wasn't the only one there's something sad about saying i am the first at doing this it sounds like something to get praise for but there's no blueprint There's no paving the way before that. You've had to figure it out by yourself on your own with a lot of ups and downs. So while it was very beautiful and it's something that I pride myself, it's almost sad to just stand alone. I need more. I need more people that are diverse in my industry. I mean, whenever we're approaching lunch in a production, I don't want anybody to look at me weird because, oh, she's the only one that doesn't eat pork. Okay. Well, like, you know, it should be like now, like now it's, I remember back in the day about at least 15 years ago, if somebody said they were vegan, you're what, you know, type of thing. I'm not vegan, but like, you know, if anybody said they were vegan, it's like, oh, now everybody has oat milk. Everybody can have, you know, replacements and gluten-free things. And so that's the pain of kind of being like the only person. Now it's also a responsibility because at the same time, and I'll be very very open and honest about this for the longest time i had this pride about i'm happy that at least whoever comes behind me they're going to be able to run because i'm taking forever to do this i walked for a long time so that they could run but at the same time it almost started feeling like am i guiding my fellow hijabi sisters into our slaughterhouse because To be honest, and this is the first time that I've ever truly spoken about this publicly, for the longest time, I thought I was doing a good thing, encouraging people to take upon this path and this industry because it's fun, but the industry is not there. They said they were there. They said they wanted diverse. They said they wanted hijabis. They said they wanted Muslims. They said they wanted people of all skin tones and genders and, and they're not ready. When you become too much of something, when you become too Arab or when you become too Asian or when you become too Hispanic or when you become too Muslim or too religious, it's a problem. It hasn't been a problem for me because I'm this unicorn that they can't place in a box. You just said it yourself. I, I was marketable because it was a taste that they can digest. You know, It was something that they could process because it wasn't too much of something. So it almost fit in that other box. But when injustices and things in the world happen and when it's my duty to stand next to my Muslim brothers and sisters in solidarity for whatever reasons, I become too much. And then now I become censored or then now and then. So now I think, wait, am I doing the right thing or should I start empowering women or my fellow Muslim brothers and sisters or just women in general and men to just be themselves instead of following Maybe don't follow my path. Maybe stand in your truth and be who you want to be in your art, in your work, in your whatever space that you want to take in. Just be you.
0: Yeah. I, I, I mean, I totally resonate with that, Sandra, because, you know, as we come into ourselves, we see the possibilities of who we are. And I think exemplars like you demonstrate passion, grit, Perseverance, as you said in your film, patience. Beautiful <laughs> Patience. <laughs> okay. And considering what you just said, considering these institutional challenges, right? To not only who we are, but our identity, our histories, right? Our superpowers. Because as I've said many times to myself and to others, you know, folks like us have a superpower. We have our two feet in four places at the same time we are so malleable and flexible and we're able to be home and present with so many people in so many different places that sometimes it's dizzying and i think to myself in light of everything that you've achieved and you've said and you've shared where is your work going where is your craft going which direction is your creativity going in
1: so i i made a pledge to myself and i've been working on a personal journey where Makeup is my medium, but I think I have a bigger calling. You know, the other day I was speaking to a friend of mine. She's half Mexican, half Native American. And she said, you know what, Sandra? You have this thing where people listen to you when you speak. You should use that for a bigger good. And I said, well, you should tell that to my husband because sometimes he doesn't (laughs) listen. (laughs) But with that being said, you know, it's almost like you know what? You're right. I mean, makeup is my medium and I can tell stories using makeup. And the project that I did with Shangri-La made me realize that that's really, truly the direction that I want to start going to. I rather focus on an exhibition so that I'm able to have these conversations and... something happened to me not too long ago, of course, we can't ignore the fact that there is a war happening right now. And unfortunately, everybody is, you know, it's taken everybody by this huge sadness and overwhelming feeling. And I've noticed a lot, my personal observation on this, without getting political, has been that a lot of people have been sharing unfortunate videos where we see the death of our Muslim brothers and sisters. And unfortunately, a lot of people Cannot digest that. It's not normal for us to keep looking at that. So I decided to have a different approach. I decided that instead of posting those very traumatic videos, I would post a reel that was about an art installation. I don't know if you've ever seen it before. It's like this little mechanical arm and it has like this liquid. It is supposed to use it to survive. So it spills the liquid all over. The liquid looks like blood. So there's this mechanical arm that is spilling this blood everywhere, but then it's trying to grab it all over again because it would die allegedly the robot would die if it doesn't collect all this fluid again so that it could keep functioning. It's almost like an oil, but it just looks like blood. It's very mesmerizing to look at, to be honest with you. But then the whole point was that this robot was programmed to keep gathering this and then do happy dances in between to entertain the public that was looking at it. So it's very ironic, right? But then at the same time, with the years, the mechanical arm stopped working. So the whole function of this robot was to spill blood, to collect it, to keep it alive. But it couldn't catch up because there was so much blood that was spilled. So the arm died. But what the robot didn't know is that it was working on electricity, not hydraulics. So the whole point of that art installation is this robot was programmed to believe something that it wasn't necessarily true. And it kind of resonates with what is happening right now. We're not programmed as humans to be terrible people and go do these atrocities. But people were able to resonate with that art piece more than it did with looking at real human beings and what they're going through. And it sparked more conversations. So with that being said, that art piece specifically started more conversations. So I thought, well, maybe that's what I need to do. Start creating more art so we can have these conversations. Because unfortunately not everybody can look at the reality and process it. So maybe that's where I'm going and what I want to do. I, I want to start opening up bigger conversations, uniting people. I don't know why there's all these divisions of religion of just being different. I don't understand it. Even within their religion, different sex and different things. And it's like, why aren't we just all one? You know?
0: Sandra, tell me about a joy or a meanness that recently came to you as an unexpected visitor?
1: Oh, this is a tough one, but this is beautiful. With the recent events happening, unfortunately, you know, in Palestine, um, my husband's Palestinian and my son is half Palestinian, half Mexican. I lost the ability to cry for three days, and that worried me. So that was a very uninvited guest because I am an empath, I care, I have a heart. And I just couldn't understand why it became normal, why all of a sudden I stopped feeling. And I had to pause for a second and dig deep in my heart and realized that it was becoming too much and I had to tune out. Actually, I got sick. And so that fully took me out for like a good three, four days. And then I started feeling again. But I was very lost at words that I stopped feeling because that's not normal. Because part of my everything, part of my manifesto, part of my lifestyle, part of everything is connecting. And I wasn't able to connect anymore. And so I'm thankful yesterday, I was crying and my husband's like, why are you crying? I'm like, no, 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 it's a good thing. I haven't been able to cry, you know, in a few days. So I cry now and I'm not crying cause I'm sad. I'm happy that I'm able to have and feel these emotions because that makes me human. And that makes me connect with my fellow Muslim brothers and sisters, non-Muslims and sisters, Jewish, non-Jewish, atheists, everybody. I wanna be able to connect with them and say, I'm here, I'm present, I hear you and I'm sorry that we have gotten to this state.
0: Sandra, thank you so much for being on this Being Human.
1: No, thank you. Thank you for being human and bringing our human experiences to everybody that is willing to listen.
0: This was the last episode of the season, so that's a wrap for Season 3 of This Being Human. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have, and here's the even better news. This Being Human will be back for Season 4 later this spring. I'm excited. Our team is excited. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to This Being Human. You can find links to Sandra Sines's work in the show notes. This Being Human is produced by Antica Productions in partnership with TVO. Our senior producer is Kevin Sexton. Our associate producer is Emily Morantz. Our executive producers are Laura Regeer and Stuart Cox. Mixing and sound design by Phil Wilson. Our associate audio editor is Cameron McIver. Original music by Boombox Sound. Shago Tajvidi is TVO's Managing Editor of Digital Video and Podcasts. Laurie Few is the Executive for Digital at TVO. This Being Human is generously supported by the Aga Khan Museum. Through the arts, the Aga Khan Museum sparks wonder, curiosity, and understanding of Muslim cultures and their connection with other cultures. The museum wishes to thank the Hillary and Galen Weston Foundation for their generous support of This Being Human.